0: and it's great to learn with him Uh, again. Today's class is on how Jewish wisdom can inspire a paradigm shift with renewed leadership. Uh, We have the folks here in the Zoom. We have countless, countless others who are accessing this virtually outside of the Zoom room. So Rabbi Sarna, you're partially speaking to those in the room and 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 to a large degree, even more to those not in the room. And uh, let me tell you a little bit, uh, just a brief snippet of our scholar today, Rabbi Yehuda Sarna, is the executive director of the Bronfman Center for the Jewish Study for the Jewish Student Life at New York University, serving on the faculty of the Wagner School for Public Service. In 2019, he was appointed Chief Rabbi of the Jewish Council of the Emirates. Um, it's also a pleasure to uh, uh, share this lecture today with Ortzion Congregation Ortzion, our co-sponsor for today's program, Rabbi Yehuda Sarna. How Jewish wisdom can inspire a paradigm shift with renewed leadership. Our plan is that he's gonna, he's gonna share with us for a while, and then we'll have the chance to open up the floor for questions and conversations. Rabbi Sarana, thank you for All being right.
1: here. Wow. Well, it's such a great honor and delight to be with you. I mean, I, I literally, I don't have enough good words to say about how Rav Shmuley has inspired me personally and being able to just to uh, uh, continue to follow the work, not just of him, but of the, of the whole community the whole Valley uh, Baby Josh community is, is just completely inspiring. Not stopping, you know, not, not stopping in the face of all kinds of adversity or challenges to ask the question, uh, how can I make a difference in the world? Um, how can I become more connected to wisdom of the Torah, to the depth of Judaism um, and be as present as possible? And all the challenges that are our world is just, uh, you know, so the the Torah that we're learning together, that you are learning on an ongoing basis, uh, doesn't just remain within within the Beit Josh but of course is, uh, reaches far beyond. So that's just to say, it's a great honor for me to be here today. Um, I am intensely interested in who everybody is is in uh, in this class. I mean, I recognize that it's not just the people who are in the Zoom room right now, and goes beyond, and that also people might be tuning in from all all different kinds of circumstances, whether they are, uh, you know, whether it's the only activity that they're doing right now or one of several activities they're doing right now, uh, whether people are in the midst of caring for others, younger or older, whether people are uh, uh, just in the, you know, so wherever you are, whatever it is that you're doing, I am grateful for your time. And certainly at the point in time, when I I finish up part of the presentation, I welcome, your questions now, Shmuley. Is there a way for people to ask questions who are tuning in through another medium, or it's only people in the yeah, same room? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. If we get questions from face um, from other places, we will we will channel those along. Um, oh, and actually, no, we're not on Facebook on this one. No, no, the people, the others who are not in the room are accessing it after the event, so it's only those in the room. But folks are invited to chat on the sides, and and we will monitor that um, in case you're not.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's good. So let's talk about that overused word, leadership. Uh, I, I have the privilege of teaching in the Wagner School for Public Service. That's NYU School for uh, for nonprofit management, government, etc., etc. So that's that's the, the that's my that's where I, I do my classroom teaching. And uh, about uh, ten years ago, after I begun to, you know, work in a more, um, focused way, uh, uh, with the Imam and the Catholic priest at NYU. And, uh, we were challenged by the Wagner school to come up with a plan for how we might teach multi-faith leadership in a university setting. In fact, we were challenged with, um, putting together a, a curriculum, which would become the first, uh, academic minor in multi-faith leadership. And, and in order to do that, we had to think deeply about what does it take to actually lead across religious traditions, to bring uh, communities of uh, the devout, who have different frames and of uh, different val- values, really and different uh, points of reference, in terms of sacred texts, sacred ideas, Different structures to their communities. What does it take to actually bring people together, and, uh, and and who would be the mavens? You know, who are the people who are out there, who have been out there, uh, who do this effectively? But to try to take to distill the best of uh, what there is out there, and to bring it to young people who are not necessarily pursuing careers in the clergy, right? Not necessarily going to become rabbis, priests, imams, etc. But uh, people. Do work in, you know, whatever it is, medicine, engineering, business, law. What does it mean for them to begin to integrate uh, a sensibility of how to exhibit leadership in situated works across, uh, across faith communities? So what I was hoping to do today with you is to give you just a, a bit of a distillation, if you will, the 30-minute version of a 30-hour university course. And uh, there's no test at the end, okay? There's no test at the end. But I am very curious to hear questions, comments along the way. And uh, and then what I'll also do is share with you some of my experiences over the past, uh, from the past two years, as serving as the, the first chief rabbi of the, of the Jewish community in the UAE, United Arab Emirates. Of course, this role took on much different proportion uh, as of September, as of August, August, September, with the signing of the Abraham Accords. As my nine-year-old son said to me, uh, Abba, you went from being the chief rabbi of a nothing to the chief rabbi of a something. So uh, I'm happy to come share some of my experiences with you in as much as they might relate to the topic of our conversation. Um, I just want, for a point of clarification, originally we we were on for, uh, for, the total of an hour is that right?
0: Yeah, hours are hard stop at two o'clock here, five o'clock.
1: In yeah. Okay. Very good. Uh, there might be another hard stop, which would be when my when Hurricane Sarna, that is, my kids come crashing through the door. Uh, so you'll know when that happens. Okay, that might be the, that might be the other hard stop.
0: I thought we were already on Hurricane Sarna. <laughs> Sorry. I thought I thought this was Hurricane Sarna.
1: <laughs> oh no 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 no! The hurricane, the tornado. <laughs> not to make light of those things because they're very very serious but yeah by analogy by, by borrowing there so let, let me tell you a little bit about the adventure which uh, which is uh this college course that i've been teaching every semester for the past seven years which never gets boring and is always illuminating um we had thought about what does it take to to be able to lead in our complex world, right? We live in a world where the only constant is change. We live in a world where people are coming into contact with more and more cultures, with greater and greater frequency and higher and higher stakes. And that is part globalization, part internet, whatever it is, we are being, we're being called on to exist in that space. Of course, this has generated a counter reaction where people say too complicated, too complex, too confusing. What I want is like. I want to be with like people, like mentality, like geography, like nation. I, I don't want to live in the world where I'm hyper exposed to the complexity of many people's identity, the gray, the fuzzy, the the the, the in between, the liminal. It's too much. So we understand understand very what very much why the reality of our world. More and more cultures, greater frequency, and higher states. Well, that reality has created that counter movement. But the question they're asking is for the people you know who are, are inheriting this world, who are coming into their own, uh, what was the what is the essential skill set that we want that that we would love to train the next generation in so that they can lead. Now I want to tell you what my initial instinct was and then I want to share with you why I departed from that initial instinct. Coming into the course, the first time I taught it, I thought that the most important thing was for people to know just the basics about many different cultures and religions. Just the basics. So that, you know, what are the key terms? What are the key beliefs? What's the name of the sacred scripture, if there is one? And then, really quickly, what... Uh, I realized now I co teach this course with the Imam at NYU, the Muslim religious leader at New York University, Imam Khalid Latif. What we realized really early on is that there was a discomfort about the segment of the course, which, where, where the goal was to teach people a little bit about something. It's not that people were uncomfortable about learning about other groups, in fact, that was the most comfortable part satisfy the curiosity. The moment where there is the highest degree of discomfort was when they read the text or heard the synopsis of what their own religion was. Imagine if, someone, if you were to hear someone describe Judaism in three minutes, five minutes, or if you were to read 10 pages or 20 pages in a book about Judaism along, along eight or 10 other religions. I, I, I would bet you that that you would be very discomforted by it. That's not me. That's not all of what I believe. Or why are you focusing on the Ashkenaz and not on the Sephardi? Why are you focused on the reform and not on the Orthodox, or not on the conservative? Why are you focused on the the Talmud and not on the Responsa, or not on the philosophy? You would not be able to find yourself. You would feel stereotyped, boxed in. That's not now. The other thing that people were uncomfortable about is that it was so theoretical and not lived, not experiential. And so what we decided to do was the following thing. We redesigned the course, we scrapped everything and basically got rid of the curriculum that we had worked so hard on. And we decided to do something which is a little different. We said, you know what, let's focus. Instead of starting from the point of what theoretical knowledge is necessary in order for people to move competently between different uh, faith communities, we said, "Let's, let's not start with the religion, let's start with the people. And what we decided to do was to look for a methodology of storytelling. A methodology of storytelling. How can we start with the people in our course. Use them, use the students themselves as the texts. Okay, their stories as the, as the authority. Treating, recognizing each person has their own story and that their story constitutes a different kind of authority. No one is an expert on the Judaism of David Lieberman more than David Lieberman. Sorry to call you out David, but uh, uh, that there is, there's something very Uh, unique and powerful about the way that you may have experienced your own life in your own shoes, from your own own perspective. And so uh, what we decided to do was to think about how can we train these students to authentically tell their own story and then use that story to inspire and motivate others as the key skill set and moving across difference. Let me say it again. How can we train people to tell their own story in an authentic way, which can inspire or motivate action, which can then bring along, magnetize, activate people from different faith traditions to go along with a particular action? So we reached for a few texts to provide the, the, the methodology. One was an essay, very influential essay by someone who Shmuley might know, whose name is Marshall Gantz. Gantz, community organizer, I believe he was a social worker, he is, and then he taught at Harvard for a while, may still t- teach at Harvard. Do you, you know? Him?
0: closely with Cesar Chavez.
1: Exactly. So Gantz wrote this magnificent essay um, called The Art of Public Narrative public narrative, and in it, he describes the, the, uh, the elements, the, the building blocks of uh, the stories that, that, that motivate people's action. His premise is that whether you're a political leader, a social justice leader, if you want to g- garner people, garner attention, garner action, and focus it on a particular cause, you can have all the data in the world, but data does not motivate action, emotion does. And story is what stirs emotion. Even he says, etymologically, the word, the, the, the word for motion, movement, is connected to the word emotion. And data simply does not drive emotion. It is stories that do. And he says, if you want to motivate action, through story, you have to also be focused on what kind of emotion is it that you are trying to generate? Because sometimes even within the same kind of plane of emotion, there is a manifestation of a, a certain kind of emotion, which, is, which can be paralyzing, discouraging. Uh, and then there's another kind of emotion which can be activating. Think for a second about anger, anger. Many people have studied anger, psychologists, psychologists, what is at the root of anger? A very simple way of, of understanding anger, at least one understanding of anger, is that anger is the feeling that somebody has when there appears to be a gap between justice and reality. That is their own perception of justice. Because you feel like, why doesn't the world conform the world the way I see it? Why isn't the world that that I see, that I experience, why doesn't it conform to the way things ought to be? That's anger, that's anger. And anger can be actually a very positive positive emotion in as much as it can inspire an individual to say, let's bridge between the world that is and the world that ought to be. Sometimes it can be very negative. For example, sometimes, let's say within the context of uh, Relationship, uh, I might feel like I deserve a certain kind of respect or admiration or whatever, and then we'll get angry at the person with in, who I share a relationship with, and say and, and like lash out at that person. Now that could be very negative because I might be in my head, you know, do I deserve you know my 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 my, my idea of what just is? Is that right? I'm in relationship just with one other person. But when it comes to some of the broader challenges that that Rav uh, Shmuley and others have taken up, when you see a lot, well, well, I, I see a world which is uh, which is just doesn't seem it's just, it's just not fair. The anger that uh, that can be that, uh, can be um, felt, if channeled in the right way, can actually direct people, large groups of people. To seek to change the world that is to bring it closer to the world that 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 that, uh, that could be. Now, the truth is that along the same plane of anger, there is a kind of um, there there is a kind of anger, especially when you feel like, or when you're led to believe that the world cannot change, which can cause a very destructive kind of anger, right? So what Gantz is saying is that if you tell a story. Make sure you tap into a, uh, a kind of emotion which inspires action and constructive action, not one that will lead you just to, to self-isolation or, uh, or destructive behavior. And here's what Gantz lays out as the key building blocks. He says, every story that inspires action has three components. Number one is a story of self, a personal story. Starting from the personal. Uh, there's something that happened to me. Okay. Then he says there is a story of us. And which is the which is the way that the story that a person has just told about themselves, in essence, is not only a story about themselves, but in one way or another, a whole group of people whether it's a dozen people, a thousand people, a thousand people, millions of people, in one way or another, share in that story. I've faced a similar kind of challenge. had to make the same kind of choice. had to endure or benefit from a certain kind of outcome. It's not just my own story. It's a story, really, of all of us. And then he says the third component is a story of now is when someone can narrate how there's, a certain, there's an urgency around an action happening now, whether it is you know, voting before an election, whether it's coming out to a protest, whether it's about writing an op-ed, whether it's about caring for someone who's vulnerable, giving charity now, for some one reason or another, there is a deadline, which is a hard stop. And, if, and, and, and there is a window of opportunity that is closing. And there is a reason why the implications of the story, not just of my story, but of all of our stories, there's a reason why this needs to, uh, that this has to imply action now. Story of self, story of us, story of now. Now, I got to tell you this. Persuading people that they have a story, there's a power to their story, it may, might be one of the hardest things that, that I try to do. Telling each and every person that there is something about the life that they've led up until this point. They don't have to you know, search any further than the experience they have. There's something that they already have. If they just dig deep enough and they tell a story in a certain way, can motivate the actions of hundreds or thousands or millions. Most people do not actually believe that. So every semester I get this class, students coming from all over the world. And on the first day of class, they look like regular college students. But then we challenge them in the following way. We say the next class tomorrow, come into class and everybody has to tell a story that makes them feel just a little vulnerable. Not the story you would tell on a first date, maybe the story you tell on like third or fourth date. It might be something that, you know, you have never told anybody before, but do it for this class. Yeah, you'd be shocked to hear the kind of stories that people will just open up with. And I'm telling you, you walk through a classroom it looks like an average college class. This is easily one of the most powerful thing, educational experiences that I'm able to be a part of you know, on a regular basis. Because people are coming from all over the world and you will never ever guess the kinds of experiences that people have had. One person I remember, there are a few stories that always jump out at me. One person who grew up in Queens, whose parents were immigrants from Somalia, said, gets up in front of the class and he describes how his, um, he never wanted to disappoint his parents because he saw them working so hard so that he could succeed in life. And he lived in a tough, tough neighborhood. And he said one day, when he was 11, he was walking home from school and he and and he was caught in a crossfire, uh, and he, a bullet great actually grazed his arm, and he came home. He lay down, and and he walked through the house quickly so that his parents wouldn't see him, and he just lay down in bed and went to sleep. And his father came to wake him up in the morning for school and saw that he he was bleeding. I mean, there's, he was bleeding. There's blood all over the bed and he got upset. He said, you know, what's going on? He says, well, I, I, I didn't, I, I was worried that if you knew that I was hit by a bullet, you'd get upset at me. And so I just went and hid so that, um, so that you, he, to that point, he did not want to get his father upset. Someone else told the story of, uh, it was a well-to-do family in, in Westchester, New York, whose family is originally Pakistani, went back to Pakistan one summer and was kidnapped and, and uh, brought to a warehouse where there were about 50 other young girls who were being kept. And her family was uh, able to hire a private investigator uh, to come and find her. Three days after she was being kept, um, she was uh, in the middle of the night flashlight in her eyes and she, and the person with the flash had said are you so and so we're here to come and take you back uh because you, you know your, your parents hired us and she said thank you very much but no thank you i'm not leaving without all of my sisters and in that moment said that she's 16 years old she said unless everybody here is able to go i'm not going i mean unbelievable stories now even the people who maybe you didn't have kind of that degree of trauma or whatever, When, 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 when we ask people, think about something that made you feel vulnerable or that in your telling there's a point of vulnerability, it was almost impossible for someone to share that story without others feeling a point of human connection. That's the story of self. The story of self is when you are able to find uh, something about your own experience, where there is just, as you share it, just a little bit of terror that you experience in sharing it. Just a little bit of hesitation, just a little bit of concern. How will other people take me? That is what opens a person up for human connection. And in order to bring other people to a point of action, the key thing is them feeling a connection to the person who's telling the story. Now, there have been uh, the, the, the other major challenge that we have beyond uh, teaching everybody, kind of opening up that they have a story to themselves that's very powerful, is helping them bridge between the story of, of, of self and the story of us let's take that, um, that, uh, that young person who was, uh, who was uh, kidnapped. Most every no one else in the class, for example, had been kidnapped. So the challenge for her was to say, well, how can your story be the story of other people? If no one else in the class has experienced a same, the same kind of, trauma, circumstance that you did. What choice did you face that in some way or another can be generalized that other people can then attach themselves to? So we worked on her story. So she said, well, the truth is, the choice that I had to face was I knew that my life was in danger. I knew that I may have to spend the rest of my life as a... uh, uh, i might get sold i might be a slave i might be i don't know what's going to happen to me um, and i also knew that i had the opportunity because of my family's privilege to get out while other girls to to uh, no fault of their own would not have that same opportunity i said uh-huh, continue so she said well what I, what i was really tra- what i was really going through my head is am i prepared to risk my own well-being for that of others. Just, and they were not even people I knew well, but how am I prepared? And, and as she said that, I saw it in the rest of the class. They said, you know what, that is a very common experience. Maybe the, the her particular story is, um, it is about this kind of very odd set of circumstances, but the choice that she faced is a choice that many people will face because in one way or another, think about it this way, in one way or another, you know, we are all that person who has, because we have all faced in one way or another, that moment where we could get ourselves out of something without necessarily bringing everybody else along. We could go ahead just with the the private investigators that are found family is faith and not concern ourselves so much. And there's a part of us that does not want to risk our own personal standing for the benefit of others. If you just think about the, you know, the way people calculate their giving, you know, they're giving, their philanthropic giving or charity. Why don't people give more? Why don't people give more? People have no problem Live, you know, they have shelter, they have a retirement account, why don't people give more to feed people who are hungry, hungry? Part of what's going on in people's minds is they say, well, I, there's a certain kind of um, risk tolerance that I have. You know, I'm, I'm prepared to give a strict amount without risking my own welfare, but to give more than a certain amount, that I'm not, not quite prepared to do, not ready to do that. And, and that's actually a part of many, many people's calculation. You say, I'm just not ready to risk it. But in this person's story, the outcome was something which is very inspiring. Not only was she able to get herself out, but she was actually able to free, uh, she called them her 50 sisters. So, um, a part of the work then is, is trying to figure out what the story of now is that third component. How do you channel, you know, how do you stir up a certain emotion, but then channel it into a particular cause. With a particular deadline, and uh, and that is uh, something which uh, which is you know has to do with each person's passion, what they see as the cause of their the cause that they're going to be you know focused on particularly. Uh, but that is you know just in a in a nutshell, what I wanted to share from you uh, uh, as an ingredient of leadership, particularly within the world that we live in we encountering more and more cultures, greater and greater frequency, higher and higher stakes. It's not that we need to know everything about everybody, but what we do need to know really well is our own story. We need to be able to communicate, be, be ready to be somewhat vulnerable in order to allow for human connection across faith lines, across communal lines, across ethnic boundaries. We need to know our story, but we also need to be comfortable being vulnerable with others to form that human connection. We also need to spend time thinking about how can our individual story be not just the story of ourselves, but also the story of others. And, and then lastly, how can the story, which is really the story of, of many people be used in order to, to, to move people towards action? Wanted to share uh, just a few words with you about um, some of my recent experiences in, uh, in in the United Arab Emirates because I think uh, it may be helpful. But I, I realize we're it's uh, looking at the time. I'm wondering if we should open it now to any questions and or comments, or we should come back to this, or I should keep, just keep going. I'm sure. yeah, I,
0: I I have two, I have two questions, and we'll see if anyone else does also. Um, one question is, you know, in sales, and sales is quite different than motivating, um, motivating uh, altruistic action, if we wanna call it that, you, you talk about um, the story of you. You're trying to touch them with their story, right? As opposed to the story of I and the story of us. And th- uh, so what do you make of that? This idea that, that you're not um, talking directly to the person uh, about their story That's my first question. The second is, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is not the first, but among many who have written extensively about the breakdown of us, who we normally think of the bowling alone. How does the story of us still factor in a world where people don't think in terms of us as much as they used to?
1: Well, let me take your first question first and your second question second. Um, Actually, (laughs) When it comes to the story of, um, you know, the, the sales pitch kind of story, uh, you know, when I'm working with college students, they've all been so well trained on how to tell their resume story, right? And the the takeaway from the resume story is really simple: I'm the best, right? When you tell your interview, you know, you're going in an interview, et cetera, and then people are so trained. I mean, I'm speaking here from New York City, maybe it's particularly a New York thing, but people are so trained to tell uh, you know, the elevator pitch about themselves, which makes which makes themselves look like the hero. What they are what they're not trained to do is tell a story about themselves that allows and enables human connection. So, uh, and in that way, uh, it, it, you you just as, just as uh, m- actually most of the stories that people tell are stories of struggle, not stories of success. Some are stories of failure. I had someone within the past year or two who got up and read her story from what looked like uh, a, a red crayon. Uh, it was written on a red crayon and And uh, it it didn't make any sense. You know, most people type, but they have it written out on their phone. And she got, was reading something red crayon. And part of her story was that she um, struggled for many years with mental health. Between the time that we gave the assignment and the time that she came to tell her story, she had a psychotic episode, was hospitalized. And in the, in the psychiatric ward, they have nothing sharp. And the only thing they had was crayons. And so she wrote out her assignment on a crayon. And she got up in front of the group and, and, and told the story, read the story. So I, I think that that's the difference. I mean, the, the sales pitch, right? They tried, sales pitch, sales story, you know, tries to impose a story on what, you know, Tell them what they want, give them what they need, uh, and, and tries to create a fictitious. You know, and maybe in this way, it t- touches on your second question. Sales pitches try to um, to to create a fictitious sense of what you know, what we all want, what we all need, and the difference is has to do with it has to do with vulnerability and human connection. Do you feel a human connection to the storyteller? Um, uh, to, the, to the point about who is the us, one of the things that happens, it's a very intentional byproduct of having people one after the other get, in, get up in front of the class and tell their story, is that people are being trained not only in storytelling, but also in listening. They're also being trained in listening. So, and I, I can see the difference in the way people listen because usually we have 20, 25 students. Between the first student who speaks and the 25th student, I can see the difference in the way the class is listening. Um, and and they know by the end, they know, especially if someone has told something that made themselves feel particularly vulnerable, someone really, you know, or something is very, very raw. They, uh, the other people in the class, they've already been uh, taught. About. So I see the crisis of. Us and they're freeing social bonds, in some ways, as a crisis of listening. And and uh, Carl Gilligan said, "Listening is what happens when you replace judgment with curiosity. Listening is what happens when you replace judgment with curiosity. Real listening is not when I already have my map of the world. I hear data and then I just put the data in the boxes that I already have. It's when." I listen, I'm hearing somebody, and I allow their categories to become my categories. That's what we're listening, to. and and I think there are many reasons why uh, why we are in a crisis of listening. If at the root of listening is curiosity, uh, it's it, uh, I think there's a lot in this world that makes us feel anxious, and it's anxiety which is the uh, which which prevents people from being curious fun nurtures a sense of curiosity. Psychologists have discovered that that curiosity can actually minimize anxiety, but anxiety and curiosity. Those are, those are the two things that are tugging at us. We live in a very anxious age, uh, whether it's because of social media, other, whatever, many, many reasons, but we live in a very, very anxious age, especially among the young and uh, and anxiety pulls a person into themselves curiosity is what takes a person out of themselves you can't be anxious and curious at the same time you can't be an anxious explorer if you can't explore if you're not curious, you can't listen if you can't listen you can't, you can't, you can't be a part of other people's stories okay um, should I uh, go a little further And then, oh, you have a hand up, David Lieberman. So, in
2: terms of uh, leadership, what I'm hearing is, a, an early step is creating an emotional attachment between two people, Uh, and it can go both ways. the, The telling of the vulnerability, and the listening to the other person's story. Uh, and then once that connection is made, well, that's an early step.
1: Necessary step. Yeah. So a, then it's what? A, it's a necessary step. Well, yeah, look, an early let, let, step. It's a necessary. It's a necessary step because people people want to feel like they are they are following the vision of a real person, not a not a fake person. Right. They don't they don't want to follow somebody who's fake. They want to follow someone who's real, but. And what real means is 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 human connection. So that, that was part of, you know, what punctured the, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of, you know, when people talk, and people will talk about uh, disillusionment with people who are politically correct, it's because they feel like that so someone out there is just following a script, they're just reading a script. They don't really mean it, you know. But... But there's a, but you could have someone with like, who represents those same values. Who, not they're not doing it because it's politically correct or because it's politically incorrect. You know, those are both scripts. Those are both equally scripts. Um, but they're they want. What, what, I mean, you have somebody who you feel like is really absorbed, you know, the ethos of the values, represents them in their being. That's someone you want to follow. Um, and the, and that is, you know, some. Theorists of leadership will talk about leading from the inside out. You know, where leadership is not about—it's not about wearing the right tie or or or, uh, or having big feet or whatever it is. You know, that some people will say it's not about a person having certain properties. Leadership is really the challenge of a generation, the way the way or the way a group of people address a particular issue or problem or social ill. And what bonds people is stories and people exist within that story. Uh, Michael. I'm I'm wondering
3: in in this time period where we see tribalism and anger and and, and such divisiveness in this country and around the world, is that I assume that's a challenge in coming up with our own story in, in terms of a context that can, Help us interact, build bridges, or see commonality. Did you do you, have you noticed that the the challenges in your class or when you're looking with this this, this almost dissent and the and the anger?
1: Oh my, that's such a good question. It's such a good question. Well look, you can disagree with someone's argument. It's hard to disagree with someone's story. Right? That's, that's part of the wisdom of, of beginning with lived experience because you are telling your own story. So story ca- carries a different kind of authority. There's a different kind of logic to a, particular, to a story than there is to a particular argument or to data. You know, the way someone will put data together. When someone tells their story, they are being themselves. Now, what you're saying is certainly true, which is that that uh, that it's not going to be that the same story will inspire everyone or motivate everyone, and certainly there are going to be people who, you know, who 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 will not uh, will not go along with with the. Let's say the transition from the story of self to the story of us. They'll say, "No, that's not my story." You know, they'll push back against that. Certainly, when you, if you were to watch different uh, political rallies during the campaign season, you know, some of the stories that are told. Sometimes, you know, the opposition that you have is that you feel like, okay, that might be that person's story, but that's not my story.
3: And I, I, I see it. I'm just asking. I see it almost as a two-way sort of thing. On one hand, how can we separate our story from the filters that we see the world through? But the other thing is, how do we, in listening to stories, try and remove those filters and open up so we can hear what's beneath, beneath that as well? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, I- I wish I knew the answer. I mean, that's to the point that you're making. You're, make, you're making a very, very thoughtful point. Very thoughtful point. I don't know. I mean, and we live in a very strange moment, right? Because on the one hand, you probably see it your own, in your own life, in your own life, your own lives. like you are able to connect with people who are such different, who come from such a different place than you do halfway across the world, et cetera, et cetera. But yet it could also be that the person who lives two doors down from you, I don't exactly know where you are. You, do you live in Arizona? No. So maybe someone who lives two doors, maybe four doors down from you, you know, you just don't see eye to eye with them on the things that, you and they believe are our greatest consequence. Look, I gotta tell you, this has been some of my, um, some of the most, uh, you know, inspiring parts of, uh, of, of, of doing some, some work in the United Arab Emirates. I, I, I went there for the first time in 2010, uh, New York University I work as campuses in, in different countries, about uh, about 12 countries. And then in the 2007, 2008, um, began the process of building a campus in Abu Dhabi, which is the capital emirate of the United Arab Emirates. And, um, and I, I went at the invitation of, uh, of the president at the time, John Sexton, uh, to help interview Stu- the first group of students were coming in from around the world to uh, to apply to NYU Abu Dhabi, which is a four year uh, four year college. And I had this experience my first trip, where I was in a supermarket. I remember it, it was a French supermarket called Carrefour, and I went with the Imam, Muslim religious leader. We both we went. we were part of a larger group from NYU in New York to go to Abu Dhabi to interview you know 150 students who were being flown in some of them on a plane for the first time were being flown in from around the world to interview for NYU Abu Dhabi and I was in the I was in the supermarket and I remember I was in I was in the dairy section and I was looking at the cheeses to see if the Philadelphia cream cheese that was on the shelves of on the Shelves of Carrefour had uh, an OU, you know, a kosher symbol, like the Philadelphia cream cheese here, because I, I didn't there wasn't a lot for me to eat. Anyway, I was looking. And in that moment, they, they, my friend Khaled said, can you wait here for a second? I'm just going to go around, the, you know, to another aisle. There's something I don't want to pick up. I said, OK, but then let me just describe the scene to you. I'm in, in Carrefour, a French supermarket. But it's also my first time in an Arab country, or as my Palestinian friends would say it's my second time, but oh, whatever. Okay, I'm in, I'm in an Arab country for the first time. And I felt all of a sudden alone. And I kid you not, in that moment, there was a rush of fear that came over me because I was alone in an Arab country And I felt almost certain that I was going to get stabbed, that I would be a victim of a terrorist attack. Nothing happened to me, of course. But but I realized in that moment, you know, that I really had to come to terms with the way that my, that I was, you know, that I had a stereotype of who Arabs were. Now, I say this, it's not like I, you know, I was already engaged in, in in multi work, work multi faith work, and I had friends who were Muslims and had been to Israel many times and Palestinian, but nevertheless, no, even for some of my circumstance, there was something about being alone, and feeling like I didn't know it, and, and in that moment, that a rush of fear came over me, and it it came over me, it gripped me, and then when Khalid came back, it dissipated. But I, I'll never forget that moment because uh, it just, it, 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 um, it crystallized for me. Again, even someone who was, you know, was coming from the place I was, but it, it crystallized in me just how deep uh, stereotype I had, uh, I, I, I was holding. And um, so I started going back to uh, NYU Abu Dhabi once or twice a year until around 2016, 2017. At that point, I, um, I, uh, I, I met up with a small nascent Jewish community that began forming in Dubai. So it's about an hour, an hour and a half away drive and, um, and began advising them on, on, on uh, you know, as they were asking, but how to establish shul because at the time they were meeting in people's homes and then 2017, they said, "Okay, we're going to establish a synagogue." They rented a villa, which was, you know, for the purpose of being a synagogue. Uh, first, you know, new synagogue established in the in the Arab world in probably 150 years. And uh, in 2019, as the uh, as the as the the country began, you know, really highlighting the diverse religious populations in, in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, this became, it's almost like a campaign in what they called the year of tolerance. Tolerance is, even though by American standards, American meaning it's like, that's not the word that we would use, but the, the way it translates into Arabic tolerance is is something more like akin to what we would call pluralism. Um, and, and of, you know, they wanted to tell the stories of, of uh, not just Muslims in the UAE, they wanted to tell the story of, of people who are Catholic, people who are Protestant, people who are Hindu, people who are Sikh, uh, many, many different religious groups, and among them, even though there's still a very small number, also of the Jewish community. And, uh, and so in February of 2019, they asked me to serve as the rabbi, albeit from a distance, but nevertheless. And, um and I felt like you know and I continue to feel woefully uh ill-equipped to serve in this capacity and I'll tell you why I know very little about about Islam I know very little I I can't speak Arabic my kids are learning Arabic I I can't speak Arabic I, I, I'm not an expert of, in history in the region uh, but, but the only thing that I have, which there are people who are more expert, much smarter, better speakers. The only thing I, I have is at this point, I know a lot of people. I've gotten to know a lot of people. I know their stories. And, um, and, and, and to me, I, I, it continues to amaze me, is just how, despite it being so simple, that leadership is about people. And people are about stories. Nevertheless, there there continues to be a pervasive idea that leadership is about anything else, something other than people and their stories. And uh, I guess if there's one thing I can leave you with, uh, it's just it's just that it's never to never to underestimate the power of your own story to seek out, to find it, and which can very often involve uh, experiencing a kind of vulnerability, but not, not to underestimate the power of that story and its ability to connect to other people. Okay.
0: Beautiful. Friends, we have, we have about five minutes left for some questions, so please, uh, please jump in. Don't forget to unmute yourself.
2: So I, I realize that you've taken a 30-hour class and reduced it to 30 minutes, and have given a, a main point. And my question is: Can you say, in a couple of words, what comes next then in good leadership after the connection
1: is made? Yeah, that's a really good question. So what what we um, the other thing we try to do is uh, and. Uh, we don't we don't always do this well because it comes at the end of the course. We're often pressed for time, but what we the, the, we get people that we try to get trained students in how to think about change, like how change actually happens, not just on a very someone okay someone is someone hungry. How do I get that person? To, but to think systemically, uh, you know, think in terms of systems, analyze the system of why things are a certain way, uh, and then to try to attack the vulnerabilities of that system. You know, nothing continues to be the way it is uh, without a system that supports it. And every system has a particular, has vulnerabilities. Every system has vulnerabilities. And what we try to do is get them to think back, okay, so if let's say, uh, well, I, you know, there's someone who is, the a group of people who are hungry over here, or there's a need over here. Um, if I were to think the kind of three steps back to something that even I could do, what is something that I could do, which would help create the conditions such that the vulnerability could be exploited. And how can my, I use my story to motivate others to go ahead and help uh, create an intervention. So we have to have an approach to change. Um, And there are many, many approaches to how to, bring about change, but uh, but for, for the purpose of this class, the main way that we thought think is in terms of systemic change, which comes really from understanding the system, doing analysis of the system. But look, so much about, of life is about the sweet spots, right? Where's the overlap? Where's the overlap between the things that need to get done and the things that I can do? Right? Uh, uh, and that's, and you hope and pray that the unique set of talents, resources, network that each, that each of us has is will in some way overlap with the call of the hour to do good. Thank you.
0: Beautiful. One more question. Okay. Let me ask one last one, if I may. How do you think about when to tell competing stories to build a bridge and when to not play sort of a relativistic peacemaking role, but to tell one side of the story. Today, yeah. you can tell about the Amazon workers or you can talk about the hardworking corporate leaders. You can talk about young black men in the streets. You can talk about white cops. And if you wanna be a bridge builder, we have to help each other hear each other's stories. Oh, but some, but in, in some issues, um, we want to we want to persuade that one story is the one we should we sh- we want to we want to hear. How do you think about when to tell one side of the story versus bring stories together?
1: God, that's uh, I mean, I'm, what's your answer, Riv I mean, <laughs> You have you have you have you know you have such empathy. You've like an, a you've limitless empathy for people. Right, and, and I could, see, you know, you could, I could see it. I could see the side of the story. I could see both sides. You know, you could see both sides.
3: I have a, a possible and response. I, you know,
1: there's, there, there's this great moment. Uh, there's this fellow who leads the Black Lives Matter movement in New York City, whose name is Hawk Newsom, and there's a video of him Trent Barrell, where he had, uh, uh, where he was at. He was at a Trump rally, and and um, so, you know, it was, it, it, basically the way it unfolds is that there's an engagement between him and some of the Trump supporters. But he just he very compellingly brings people together. I have another friend whose name is Daryl. Gosh, blanking. I'm gonna find out his name. You gotta check this out. This guy's amazing, and Shmuel, speaks directly to your question. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to get his name here. Sorry about this. It's too good for me to let go. Daryl Davis, of course, the great Daryl Davis. So there's a film about him called Accidental Cur- Courtesy. Accidental Courtesy. There's, there's there's a lot of material on him. And, and I got to spend much of last year in, in a few seminars with him. And he... He's a black musician, and he shows up at KKK rallies, and just engages with people from the KKK. And he has—I uh, <laughs> met him. At, I met him at a at a seminar. It wasn't one that he was leading. It was forty people. The topic was it was about um, about extremism, and. And everybody was supposed to bring an object from home, uh, so I brought my talit. It was all white talit. And then, uh, and then, he, but he had, and we we're supposed to talk about the object. Uh, he went right before me, and he said, "Well, I've been going to KKK rallies in it, and meeting people from the KKK, and and sometimes um, helping them transition out of it." And then he opens his bag, and you know, he takes out. He takes a, a full white KKK robe, and uh, and he says I have a, uh, two closets at home full of robes that people who were formerly in the KKK uh, uh, gave me once they left, and uh, and so we asked him, you know, what it, what is it? He says very simple, just listen to people. People sometimes are driven to extremism because they feel unseen. He said I go to KKK rallies. And I, I, and people understand that I don't agree with them. But I said, I don't agree with you, but I'd love to hear more about you. I invite them over to my house. And some people take my invitation. Some people don't, they come over and they talk for a few hours. I listen to them. They usually have really, you know, they have grievances, which are very real. And then, uh, and then he said, uh, but then after I've listened to them, I say, you know, would you be open to listening to me? And they say, yes. And uh, the film does an amazing job of, of uh, just kind of showing his life. And he's not, he's not, doesn't have like an organization behind him or it's just him. He just, as a person goes and meets with extremists and uh, t- talks to them. And most importantly, listens to them. So there's a lot of good that can be done just by listening. Uh, and so, but it's really to your question about deciding on the stories to tell. I don't know. I don't know if there's. I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes to motivate action also it, 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 uh, you, can't, you can't hear all the stories. Well, I mean, this has been such a pleasure. Uh, thank you for making me think. Thank you. Thank, thank you Rabbi thank Sarna, you. for being
0: here. This has been tremendous to learn this model from you and how it's being used on campus and also to learn how you're living this in your Hillel work, in your UAE work and beyond. Um, we, uh, we greatly look forward to uh, continuing to learn from you. Thank you for this time. Thank you all for joining us. Have a great rest of your day. Many blessings.
1: Take care.